This morning we continue studying God's Word in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is not a chapter that has really clear-cut divisions. I commented, I think, on this last week. This is the third time we've been looking at it. I'll try to complete our thoughts with it. Pretty much just backing up a step and picking up where we were at verse 32. That's where I'll begin reading. I'm going to read through 39. But then I'm going to go back and read two earlier verses, 21 and 22, that also emphasize the subject here. We're thinking about Jesus emphasizing the stark reality of ministry for him in a hostile world. Listen to his words here in what we believe is entirely the word of God to us. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. Then back up to verse 21 of the same chapter. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is God's holy work. Father, we ask you to show us encouragement in what sounds like a hard word. We thank you for the realism of the Scripture. Apply it to us for your praise. Amen. I wonder if you've ever held a job that turned out to be, after you were working there for a short time, Just a terrible experience such that made you regret ever applying for it and being hired there in the first place. For whatever reason, coming to work every day seemed like a nightmare, either because of the working conditions, the supervisor's demands, the difficult employees, things that you did not see that were not portrayed for you. I hope no members of the church staff are smiling at me like they... They know exactly what I'm talking about. But most of us who've been employed any number of times have had some kind of a job like that that really we think of as a very negative experience. I remember as an older teenager, I was quite disillusioned and quit a job, a summer job, just after two weeks. The manager had specifically recruited me and painted a very rosy picture of what this sales job was like. And I came to find out that 
almost everything he had told me was false. It was really very deceitful. And I bailed out. And I've always felt a little guilty and ashamed about that. And then many years later, one of my sons had a summer job, equally unpleasant for different reasons, that he left after one day. Well, most adults have had some kind of an awful work experience, and usually that has got something to do with the fact that the person in charge or the person hiring did not realistically spell out what the difficulties and what the hard things would be about that employment. If that's the case, surely no one can ever accuse Jesus Christ of enlisting followers under false pretenses. Here in Matthew 10, we find him addressing both his present and his future disciples and laying out in in very stark, even deliberately harsh terms the absolute, what we would call worst-case scenario of what it will mean to follow him. Already in this chapter, we've heard the Prince of Peace, as he is rightly called, describe persecution, division, and opposition. And now, quoting the Old Testament, he says, Did you think I came to bring peace? I brought a sword. And it will actually be me and what you believe about me that will put you in the midst of division. Now, this is not to deny that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We know, of course, that the peace he brought was our reconciliation with God as we trust in him as the atonement, the sin bearer. And we look to him for that new resurrection life by the Holy Spirit in which he himself was raised. We have peace with God. Elsewhere, it's called peace that passes all understanding. It's real. But ironically, having that peace with God sets the one who has it at odds with a society that is not at peace with God. Because remember, the Bible analyzes that mankind's natural bent, natural state is to be in what is called enmity, opposition, hostility towards God. And so if you're at peace with God, you are by default in a hostile position with those who are not. Jesus shows us here it's not really anything we've done. It's what the world thinks about him. When we are seen to be allied with him, we experience the same non-receptive and even angry responses that the world has towards God himself. Well, there's been an emphasis, and it was touched on in the earlier portion I read there in 21 and 22, but then brought out more clearly in this latter part of the chapter that You know, it would have been bad enough, perhaps, if the chapter ended at verse 31. At least we had a very positive word of reassurance there, that our Father was watching over this conflict, that He knew everything that happened to us. He would would protect us. But, But it was almost as if Jesus said, you know, I've got to tell you the worst. Here's the worst. The plot thickens. Not only does the general society hate you, but enemies are going to come from within your own family. Parents versus children, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, and so on. And he describes a few instances there. And I'm sure as I read this today, there are some of you that think of this with not a great deal of objectivity. 
because some of you face the acute pain of this on a daily basis, and you face it at your own dinner tables. Difficulties of communication, cooling of former affections, opposing value systems, and downright awkwardness that occurs when a disciple of Christ seeks to live for him and is surrounded by others who are still really entrenched in the pagan world and have none of the Spirit of Christ in them. We've all tasted this in some way in our wider family circles, but some of you drink this bitter cup in a close way every day, and you drink it with pain, and yet I hope with faithfulness. I want to examine a hard text today, a text that is not really full of bright rays of sunshine, although I think there's some hope to be said, and we'll try to say that before the end. But we look at these very explicit terms of discipleship offered by Christ to any would-be disciple regarding the intimate conflict, intimate conflict with those closest to you that is likely to come with really standing with your Lord. First of all, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, just have us pick up where we left off, but maybe saying it a little differently this time, with the concept of this fact that the call of Jesus demands open witness from us. I think it was back in the 1980s when the so-called stealth bomber airplane was unveiled by the military to the American public. I remember reading about it. I was pretty fascinated. I'm really not a, that much of an airplane fanatic, but I was really interested in how you could have this huge jet airplane flying at very high speed designed by scientific principles so that enemy radar almost could not even register a blip. It just somehow could smoothly make its way right through the most sophisticated radar devices. I, I was almost incredulous. I said, how, how could that happen? How could something that big not be detected? But evidently, it, it does indeed work. Well, maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised, because as a pastor, I've known for years those who I would call stealth Christians, whose testimony, whose claim of faith in Jesus Christ, whose claim that somehow they have his new life has not seemed over a long-term observation to make a blip on anybody's radar screen. And even perhaps their close family members would almost be surprised to find that there is some deep Christian faith harbored there. I remember a comment made about a man who I thought, I knew him only from a distance, but I thought he was a a real leader in another uh, church of our denomination. And uh, I met somebody who worked with him. And somehow it came up that we both knew this man. and, And this individual who was a Christian said, oh, is John a Christian? And I thought, whoa, he's known as a leader where he is in his church. And here's his co-worker who didn't know that he was a believer. I wondered what kind of a stealth Christianity was going on there. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. 
And he said, too, the the hardest part of it is that the opposite is true. If you fail to openly declare yourself as belonging to Christ, he will fail to acknowledge you to God the Father. And by this, he makes it very clear that the invisible stealth disciple is, in fact, not a real disciple at all, despite possible claims to the contrary. And you see here how Jesus is requiring an allegiance to him that is wholehearted and absolutely total. He demands nothing less than your your life, openly identified with him, so that perhaps when other people think of you, they think of your Christian testimony and your Christian witness right alongside your personality or your mannerisms or even what your face looks like. They think, John, the Christian. They don't think of that as as some kind of a subsidiary category about you that maybe they have to know you for five years to find out about it. Jesus knew that we would have the kind of encounters in our daily lives in which we would either stand with him, as he put it, or subtly deny him. And we can do it all the time, even in our silences, even in the ways we fail to react to some things, as well as the ways we do react. But in the final analysis, our stand before God in eternity, we're told here, is determined by what the Scripture elsewhere calls the good confession that we make of our Lord and the open confession. Romans 116 has Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Why would he use that expression, I am not ashamed, unless he saw it as a problem that there were people who were ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of him in some manner so that your faith is hidden, maybe quite open on Sunday morning, quite open perhaps even to your family, maybe to your relatives? but closed off in other compartments of your life. Romans 10.9 says we must confess with our mouths as well as believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. There has to be that open confession and identification that marks and is stamped upon a whole life. Now, if you would step back from this a minute, many commentators comment right here on what if you wanted to state it this way, and we don't want to be blasphemous in saying this, but if you were speaking from a mere human standpoint, you could speak here about the egocentricity of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, here's a man who is a Jewish peasant, not even formally educated that well in the, in the religious universities of his day, Certainly not an aristocrat, not wealthy, not powerful, very humble, very lowly, and yet he comes along and says that people must grant him absolutely unqualified devotion, and in fact, that devotion has cosmic significance with the living God. Now, when you start to think about that, it's amazing. If Jesus was only a man here, if he was only a man, he would have to be labeled by the word some people use, a megalomaniac. His ego is huge. To demand this kind of witness and say that it makes all the difference about a person in time and eternity. 
You know, it's really not that often that anyone demands absolute commitment from us to their cause. In fact, in these busy days, anyone who leads an organization or leads a church or whatever learns to sort of temper the demands that are made on people. Oh, people are very busy. You know, we can't expect them to do this. Or or we've got to, you know, lower our expectations of people because they have so many things going on. I remember one organizational example in my life of an almost absolute demand of commitment. My wife and I actually met through participation in a high school choral group. You had to audition for this group. It was 24 voices, six on each part, and you were considered to be privileged to have the ability to be chosen. It wasn't such a privilege for the guys because fewer guys tried out, quite frankly, but it was a privilege for the ladies when many tried out. And so if you belong to this group, this was a select group singing for select occasions. We had rehearsals in which we memorized our music. We never had music in front of us. And we really worked. And one of the reasons it worked was because our director had a single absolute rule. You came to every rehearsal. You had better be in dire sickness or at the wake or funeral of a relative if you missed a rehearsal, period. Not a date with somebody, not deciding to go to the football game, no other student activity, nothing else was tolerated. You came to every rehearsal, absolutely, or you hit the road. Total demand. Guess what? We all put up with it. And it was a good group because of that commitment. Well, here is Jesus saying, I tolerate nobody alongside me. I ask your complete and entire commitment, and it must be public, and it must be open, and the world must hear your witness that you are mine. If this Jewish peasant saying these things is not God come in flesh, then he's either insane or he's an immoral deceiver. That's all there is to it. Do you see the stark alternative here? And if he was insane, then you should certainly pay no attention to him. But if he speaks truth from God on high and calls you to this commitment because he is the Son of God on high, then you do very well to pay attention to him because your ultimate destiny hinges upon acceptance or rejection of him. And he never apologized for this demand, did he? He never, you know, you won't find in chapter 11 or 12 him saying, well, you know, I was a little hard on you before. I I wanted to sort of give you the blunt truth. Well, now let's back off. No, he never backed off. He never made it easier. And yet across 2,000 years since his day on earth, millions of people have made him their all in all such that he determines their careers, their fortune in this world, their family life. Their heart's devotion is laid at his feet. And hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in cruel ways or have spent years and decades in dank prisons rather than renounce him. They have believed him here and said they would not depart from an entire commitment to him as their all in all. Make no mistake, Scripture claims that your final standing before the eternal God depends on your allegiance to Jesus the Christ. 
It's not his ego, humanly, that demands that of you, but his divinity. The fact that he is God's all in all, a true Savior and Lord offered to men. The call of Jesus demands open witness from every disciple. That is uncompromising. Well, then secondly, we look at the matter of this sword of Jesus penetrating nearly every family. The sword of Jesus penetrating families. And he says, I didn't come to bring peace. Now he's talking socially and familially, not personally. I came to bring a sword. And because of me, a man will turn against his father, a daughter against a mother, and so on. And a man's enemies will be members of his own household. You know, one thing I should say to some of you who feel the onus of this very keenly because of your own family or marital circumstances, there are people who are acutely aware of the fact that they're married to someone who's not a believer. One of the finest elders I've ever served with, and I don't, that isn't a put down for anyone here at all, but an outstanding elder I served with in Maryland was a man who came to Christ at the age of 40, and he'd already been married for, I guess, 15 years when he became a believer. And at the time I knew him, and I believe to this very day, 20 years after I first met him, his wife is not a believer. In fact, she's a member of a very liberal Episcopal church and and avows every possible left-wing cause that you can think of. And this man is a warm-hearted disciple of Christ. And I know that he thinks with with shame or with guilt sometimes. Well, what if something had happened differently? What if I had listened to the gospel in my youth and, and had been converted sooner? Maybe Marion would be a believer also. It's very easy for those in those circumstances to perhaps go forward with a little bit of guilt or hanging their heads with shame in the public fellowship or a church like Westminster, they look around and they think, oh my goodness, every single marriage in this church is is two fine, upstanding believers walking together in Christ. There aren't any other homes that have a rebellious son who spits in their face as far as the faith is concerned. Well, folks, it should help you to know, first of all, that Jesus Christ fully anticipated your situation. He not only anticipated it, he predicted it. And hard as it is to hear, he said, this is how it would be. And don't you also realize that I would estimate that 98% of us have wider families. We don't have to go that far out to find family members who don't walk with Christ. Yours may be closer in, but all of us can go the next circle or, or the next circle and find that. My wife and I each have a brother who knows the gospel, but neither one of them walk with the Lord. Does that help? 98% of us are in this category described by this chapter. In fact, I, I doubt that if there would be assembled and we would examine it somehow through every family tree of every family in this church, and let's say take two or three, just the limitation of two or three generations, And we would say, okay, families that have every single person in those generations a Christian, raise your hands. I wouldn't look for very many hands to be raised. That would be most out of the ordinary. Jesus himself, you know, experienced this. 
He wasn't just talking about something that would come about in the future. He experienced it. Mark's gospel puts the most emphasis on it in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. We're told of that day, and we know that Jesus had brothers, call them half-brothers or step-brothers, whichever you prefer. They were the sons of, of Mary and Joseph. He had those. Don't let any church tradition tell you that Mary didn't have other children. She certainly had other children. Jesus had these brothers. Mark 3.21 tells of his brothers coming to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Does that sound like a family in Concord about matters of faith? His brothers thought he was crazy. And one of those people certainly was the one we later called James who wrote a New Testament epistle. We know that these things changed in that family, but not until apparently the cross or afterward. We are used to thinking of our homes and our families as our sanctuary on this earth, and I believe Christ is helping us here to understand that even our home as a human institution Even those most intimate family bonds where we would think this is the unshakable castle where I can retire and be safe and, and, you know, my faith will be nurtured and I will be protected and I won't have any opposition. Even the home is not the ultimate sanctuary. The ultimate sanctuary is our relationship to God through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And our American idealism maybe makes us approach Christianity thinking, well, if I'm, a, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'll be more successful because of that. My family will be better off. You know the old saying, the family that prays together stays together? I'm not saying that's a wrong saying, but it's not an absolute saying, that's for sure. And if we approach our family life with a Pollyanna view that Christianity is going to automatically make it well or make it better, We're ignoring some important things Jesus is telling us here in in Matthew 10. All men are going to hate you because of me. If they are not of Christ, if they do not belong to God as his people, they will hate you. In John 16, 33, he says a parallel word, in me you will have peace. Count on that. But in the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The world doesn't have the upper hand here. And yet the entrance of Jesus and his gospel into the world literally divides humanity into two parties. You well know, I think, that in some countries, severe Islamic countries, some Hindu societies, certainly under the hardest realms of communism that at least once prevailed, if you come forward with a hint of Christian sympathy, you can expect to be disinherited, unemployed, or completely shunned. We haven't always seen that in America, of course. And yet there are evidences of it here and there. I wonder if you recall something prophetic. It's in Luke 2, 34. It just follows the birth of Jesus Christ by one week. Remember that incident when Joseph and Mary brought the infant Jesus into the temple for the ritual of circumcision. And who did they meet? This old man, Simeon, who loved the promises of God and was looking for God's Christ all his life. He took Jesus in his arms and he spoke to Mary prophetically with these words. This child 
is destined to cause the falling and rising again of many in Israel, and he will be a sign spoken against. And the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul also. Simeon said it even before Jesus did, as a prophet of God. Humanity would be put in one camp or the other with Jesus Christ as the dividing line down the middle. Now, where does this leave us then with family love and respect? We come to verse 1037 here, I hope, with some understanding. In no way is this passage a retraction of the fifth commandment given to honor your father and mother. Of course not. Of course not. The law of God doesn't go away. These great commandments are still there for us. We honor our father and mother and and our children and our siblings as far as we can possibly honor them. But notice the crucial twist that 1037 puts on it. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Again, I say, who is saying this? You know, some Jewish teacher who lived a long time ago or the Son of God. Jesus didn't advocate not loving your father or mother. He didn't advocate you not loving a little infant. I can see one in a mother's arms over here or little children in your home. Of course not. Love them, love them deeply, love them well, nurture them, provide for them, pour out your life for them. But with this caveat, there is a higher sort of love that belongs to Christ and Him alone. And if you spend it on any person in this world and put that person between yourself and your Lord Jesus Christ, you're not loving Him as his disciple. Does that make discipleship an amazing thing or what? It says it is the highest relationship we will have. He must be number one, even your wife, even your children, beloved children, are number two. Who but God's own son could ever demand that of human beings? Well, thirdly and quickly today, the cross of Jesus brings us to see that disciples do have a great reward. Verses 38 and 39 declare this, Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a lot of wasted breath spent on what it means to take up your cross It does not mean what people so often will say, you know, well, I have arthritis, so I guess that's my cross to bear. Or I have a cranky mother-in-law. I guess she's my, I don't, but I have a great mother-in-law, just for the record. But I guess she's my cross to bear. That's not it at all. Taking up your cross And losing your life here, neither of them are literal expressions. Jesus doesn't want us to keep an eight-foot-long beam with a four-foot cross beam in our closet to carry outside the front door every day, nor does he want us to commit suicide every day. These are expressions that talk about our, by an act of our will and understanding as disciples, literally 
putting to death, putting second the exaltation of ourselves and everything of earth that we love the best so that he might be daily put first. And that's not natural. And that's why it's a deliberate act that we have to be called upon to do. And it almost has to happen every single day. You can't just say, oh, yes, you know, back in 1957, I took Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I took up my cross. Did you take up your cross today? Did you consecrate to him today the thing that you love best in your life? Whether it's your career, your wife, your husband, your only child, did you take that and say, Lord, you've given me this wonderful gift. Let me realize the best things that you have for me in this gift only as I put you first and serve and obey you and honor you. I believe you will give all these other gifts as subsidiary blessings. You see, I don't think it means that we're somehow executing our children or executing our parents Because when we put Christ first, the interests of our families and our children will all be put in a right perspective, and blessing will flow there. It's not as if we're somehow going to put them away or or execute them from our interest, but we have a superior interest and a superior direction in our lives that will put that in line. And you know, it's even possible to make family as amazing as this seems, into an idol. You maybe have only one child or you've, you've wanted to have a larger family and, and so you take that child, oh, I'm just going to pour everything into this child. I'm going to make this child what I could not be. And, and I've seen people almost destroy themselves and the child in doing that. Jesus Christ alone gets preeminence, not your child. Not your parents, not your success, not your bank account, not your retirement fund. When Jesus Christ gets preeminence, he adds all these other things as blessings. But he must be first. And your reward from him is what? Gaining your life. Not just the breath in your lungs, it means your eternal life. And you can't gain eternal life by grasping hold of something on this earth, no matter how precious or intimate that thing is. You actually have to let go of that thing and say, Lord, let it be in the place that you appoint for it. Because you're first. You're my all in all. Now, you know, I shared with Pastor Light just before we came out here this morning how this is a hard text in a way. There's almost no relief in it. There's, there's, there's no happy ending, at least not in this chapter, is there? It's a text of hard realism with no sugar-coated promises. Jesus doesn't come at the end of it and say, well, now, if you'll just do this hard thing, now these happy things will result for you. And we kind of wish he would, don't we? We want some kind of a quickie assurance that all will be right in our families. If we put Christ in the place of preeminence, that rebellious son or daughter at age 24 or whatever will turn to Christ dramatically a year from now. We would, if we could just have that assurance, we could go ahead. But we don't have that assurance. What we have here is a great realism to live by and a great Savior to cling to. But I would ri- remind you of just a couple things quickly. 
there are certainly are rays of hope for us in this situation. I would remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, where in a almost backhanded way, Paul makes a reference when he's talking about unequally yoked marriages and the believing partner staying with the unbelieving partner, not divorcing on the basis of that fact that the partner has not converted as you have. And he makes this reference in 1 Corinthians 7.14 when he says, The unbelieving husband is sanctified by his believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by her husband. And your children also are holy. That's a marvelous statement if you understand what it means. Sanctified there does not equal saved. It equals set apart. It means they are set in a particular and peculiar position, close to the witness of the gospel, close to that life of yours, which should be that life of radiating open witness of belonging to Christ. They, in a sense, are dwelling close to the brightness of the sun. How can they live completely in darkness? They are dwelling at the very threshold of the front door of faith. If anyone on earth has an advantage towards the kingdom, they have it. Now that does not give you the guarantee that you want that they will convert, but what it tells you is that that person is in the best possible position on this earth to receive benefit of the grace of the gospel. And you can pray with all your heart, And live out your witness before those you love best, and you may be the means God has appointed to win them. And let me tell you, don't ever discount the fact that families have a stronger influence for evangelism than any other source in this world. But don't be Christ's disciple under an illusion that all your life will be peaceful. It just isn't so. On the contrary, when you stand with him, you stand in a place of opposition where hostile people hate him and will hate you. And some who dearly love you and who you love will be among them. Pastor Light reminded me of a text just this morning, and I remind you of it. I'm thankful for his wonderful quick mind as he thinks of these things as we were talking about it, because honestly, I didn't think of this verse but I need to share it with you. Matthew 19, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Don't be Christ's disciple under an illusion. But remember, this heavenly father of yours had to lead his own beloved son to a cross and then turn his back on him for a time, treating Jesus temporarily as if he were an unbeliever in order to justify you in his precious sight. An amazing father capable of that kind of love can be trusted to do all things well as you walk in him by faith. So we pray together. Father, there are hard things for us here, unresolved things. 
I pray for those who have an especially heavy burden on their hearts because they see themselves depicted in this chapter. They see their home. They see someone they love above all else not loving you. I pray, O oh God, for your grace to come through our homes. But we also pray for lives of constancy and, and firmness and decision that would show forth Jesus and trust you to work in your sovereign way and give you all the praise as you do for Jesus' sake. Amen.